everybody, David here speaking to you from the greenest part of New York City that I could find. I've just been walking through the sheep meadow of uh, Central Park, but rather predictably, not a single sheep in sight, only a sheepdog kitted out with hipster length dreadlocks. Anyway, so far we've been releasing our Trees of Crowd conversations a little bit out of sequence to the order in which we recorded them, but this interview with Astrid Goldsmith was my very first Trees of Crowd encounter. Astrid was my guinea pig. Now, what does that mean exactly? Other than the absence of a ridiculous introductory pun, it merely means we're lacking enough thanks to Astrid for designing our Sublime Squirrel logo. So Astrid, thank you for that. You are very much a part of the Trees of Crowd family. And as Kismet would have it, we're releasing this episode a week following the UK Wildlife Trust's launch of a hauntingly brilliant animated take on the Wind in the Willows in support of their Wilder Future campaign. Talking back in early February here, Astrid and I discuss our love for Kenneth Graham and the Wind of the Willows and many of the ideas that we feel are necessary to bring us all this wilder, happier future. So, without further ado, this is my favourite anthropomorphic animator called Astrid, and this is Trees A Crowd. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs would bend Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible From botanists and environmentalists to printmakers and folk singers, I'm going to get a talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, we brace ourselves against the cold winds to welcome award-winning animator and model maker Astrid Goldsmith. She's been named one of the UK's most exciting emerging animators by the BFI and the BBC and has been making models since she was four years old. So Astrid, hello and welcome to Trees of Crowd. Thank you, it's great to be here. You brought some guests with you, and this is the first problem with this being a podcast, is no one can see them. Well, we're just going to have to use the power of description to... uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, I've brought some badgers with me and some other animals. Um, Is that an ocelot? uh, This this is a genet. A genet? Yes. J-E-N-N-E-T? G-E-N-E-T. Okay. Yeah. Are they the natural friend of the the European badger? Um... No, I don't think so. Um, so the uh, they're all characters from my film Quarantine, and uh, the genet was in the quarantine. So the badgers are all living underneath the quarantine facility, and then all of the all of the animals that I chose for the quarantine cages were things that weren't native to Britain. So there was a saluki, and a jaboa, and a genet, <laughs> and a koipu. This, this reminds... I used to have a big folder when I was a kid that, like, ten, like, flyers came through the post each week and you put them in these giant folders and you got these huge documents of the animals of the world. And I remember having favourites, like there was an ocelot that I was a bit obsessed with and a clouded leopard and it was always wildcats. And I don't think I remember the genet. So that, that, that means either we've discovered a new species since the early 80s, which I find hard to believe a species as beautiful as, as said genet... I, can I pick one up as well? Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm going to go for the badger. Go for it. Otherwise I'll regret never holding it. Describe <laughs> me the squirrel that you're holding. Uh, the squirrel, this is a red squirrel. So each, yeah, each puppet takes about three weeks to make. Okay. Um, do you have duplicates of the same characters? So in squirrel, in squirrel Island I did. So because Squirrel Island was um, moulding and casting the bodies and heads, I could just keep, you know, making new ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the badgers... Because I was trying to kind of use a bit more of an eco-friendly process, mm-hmm. um, they're all directly modelled. So the heads are balsa wood, and the bodies are just um, recycled snip foam. Okay. So yeah, that's a, he's actually got a broken leg, the one you're holding. Can so you he, wash their clothes? I imagine with the amount because they're wearing bright white clothes, and you're manipulating them so many times a second. Like, do you can you take them off and wash them? Uh, no, <laughs> because I was given 20 weeks to make it. So there so that wasn't... took you 20 weeks? Yes. That's incredible. It was, it was intense. You must still be exhausted. Yeah, it, I did have some sort of like, you know, P- 
PTSD afterwards like it was very intense I was working kind of 16 hour days seven days a week for yeah five so months. So an animation festival commission came to you and said make a film here's 20 weeks and you're like do you understand animation? <laughs> give us a couple of years surely. Well I think so last year was animating mm-hmm. and so I think they just wanted the films. Get it done. So that they could you know premiere them you know during 2018 um so yeah I mean I think that they probably weren't expecting like a really involved 13 minute film with loads of puppets and sets and dancing and things um I did really just make it as hard as possible for myself but yeah um so there wasn't any time to do any clothes washing they had to be on set all the time that one is really grubby though so the one you're holding now is the main is the main character um you can probably tell compared to grandpa badger grandpa badger he's uh his he was less handled no one can quite see the glee that i've currently got on my face (laughs) but throughout all that last answer that i'm I'm moving the arms around and and he's sort of walking around like a sort of a zombie at the moment (laughs) Oh, he's brilliant. Like, you should make toys and sell them. I want my nephew to have a toy badger. Well, okay, I mean, you know, if you petition some uh, commissioners... Okay, copy that. <laughs> Grandpa then... Badger's awesome. I love his jowls. He's got sort of the whiskery sort of... Yeah, they're wired, so they can animate too. They can too. flop. Yeah, they can. Or move forward and backwards, yeah. So... Have you ever made a character for a film and then... Once you've been making it, gone, oh, God, I should have given it wiry jowls. <laughs> and then suddenly another character turns up who's best, slightly better articulated. Mm. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like with any work, you know, the minute you finished, all you see is flaws and mm-hmm. all you think about is, oh, I should have done that, I should have done that. Well, you're constantly living in the past in a, in a way. Yeah. I've just discovered that he's got a, a movable, poseable tail. Oh, um, yeah. It's It's... Everything moves. Everything's <laughs> wonderful. It's like a real badger that wouldn't complain with all the manhandling. All of the... Um, actually, you can't... I'm just wondering if you can... The the Morris dancing bands are wired as well. You can probably feel that. Oh, OK. Not, not the, um, these ones, but those ones are. There you go. They've got little <laughs> bells on them as well. I hope you can hear that. What's this badger called? Kenneth. Kenneth the badger. Named after Kenneth Graham. Who yes. Wind, Wind in the Willows. Willows. I did read reread Wind in the Willows, um, but while I was writing this, um, just to kind of check that I wasn't ripping anything off, or you know, do you think the Kenneth uh, Graham estate will come back and sue you? In I just, I just didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to kind of unknowingly rip something off. Um, <laughs> but actually, yeah, rereading Wind in the Willows is really interesting. Have you have you read it recently? We did a stage version of it at drama school in two thousand. When did I leave? Seven, something like that. Two thousand six. I I played the otter. Oh yeah. No well, one remembers that there's an otter in it. Oh yeah, I remember the. Well, I only read it last year, so yes, I there remember the otter. But I didn't. I'd completely forgotten. The appearance of Pan. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the otter chapter. Yeah. So, well, let me tell you about Pan. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's the, my favourite chapter, um, which is where the Wind and the Willows title comes from, because you explain, explain Pan. I'm just going to stay here and play with this badger whilst you talk to, talk to the people in internet world. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I'd kind of remembered, you know, Mole and Ratty and Badger and all of the kind of woodland stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I hadn't really remembered that chapter where you know, Pan, who's not really kind of described precisely, but is a kind of presence of this light. Um, It's the kind of sort of, it is a religious moment in the book. Oh, massively. um, But it also retains that that kind of like woodland pagan-y vibe. Yeah, well, for those that haven't read the book, I'm about to give some spoilers. So, yeah, a ratty and molly go to find young portly otter. Yes, um, who has been seduced by the wind and the willows, uh, loads of naiads and dryads and, and Pan, the god of music and mischief. And, uh, and it's kind of midsummer, Tuesday. isn't it? Yeah, and it's just beautiful. It, and it's in the middle of all of the toad nonsense and the cars and stuff. And they all fall asleep in the boat and Portly falls asleep and they, they, they rescue the young otter because the parent otter, who I played, was a useless parent and lost it. Um, and then they, they get back in the boat and they, they sail away through the willows and, and through the reeds and the memory just disappears out of all of their minds. And at the end of the chapter, they're just 
They don't really know where they've been, but they've been somewhere beautiful and magical and mystical. Um, I, and, I, and I definitely think there is an element of that in, in quarantine. There is a sort of a magical world to it. And the fact that there's all the pipe music as well, like it, there is there's something transportative and magical about your work that I think Kenneth, this badger, and Kenneth, the novelist, would be very pleased about. Do they all have names inspired by famous literary characters? This, is this Jeremy Bentham Badger? No, that he is just Grandpa Badger. Grandpa Badger. Um, I mean, the names are just for me because they, you know, they obviously don't speak on screen and nobody else knows. Um, I can't, are there credits at the end? I can't remember. There should be. Um, <laughs> Grandpa Badger as himself. <laughs> the, uh, I don't know. You have to be quite careful because obviously people do think that animators are, you know, kind of loner weirdos. And Are they? Um, uh, I mean, <laughs> know uh but you know telling people that you name your creatures is just confirms that image like you're sitting there playing with your toys in in okay. your garage so in which case in in front of us there are three badgers there's kenneth badger grandpa badger uh frank, frank. badger a red squirrel called phyllis phyllis the red squirrel and the janet over there yeah so which is your favourite out of these five? And don't tell me you don't have favourites. Oh, no, I definitely do. I, I mean, Grandpa is my favourite, and that's why I brought him, even though he's quite large. He doesn't get a huge amount of screen time because, you know, spoiler alert, well, he, he doesn't wearing survive. a black armband right there, <laughs> yes. I noticed. So yeah. Still in mourning after all this time. Yeah. Um, is it the wide jowls that make you like him so much? Yeah, and the eye bags. <laughs> <laughs> Do you look at old human beings and go, you'd be much more appealing to me if you were a badger? Yes, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here you go. If you could be any kind of animal, what would you be? And would it have to be a geriatric one? I would be a spectacle bear. Oh, cool. And I don't mind what age spectacle bear I am. They... Oh, but if you're an old one, you'd have like sort of nice little sort of... Yeah. Like a grey beard. But and... the young ones are really cute. So maybe, oh, you know, I'd be happy to go through life as a spectacle bear and age, age gracefully. Why a spectacle bear? I've always been really into bears. I had like bear imaginary friends and stuff, but um, spectacle Just bears. Just got that one in there. Didn't you? <laughs> when I was really little, you know. Um, uh, but bear spectacle bears, I think, hug for eighteen months. Okay, so, like each other, trees. Like each other, yeah. Each jars other. of honey. It's like sea otters holding hands as they drift away at sea. Yeah, we're anthropomorphizing anyway. Maybe they're just hugging for warmth. Maybe we're just hugging for warmth. Well, yeah, and yeah, it's warmth and, uh, you know, um, communication of energy. And I just quite like the idea of living in a hole, hugging for 18 months. <laughs> with, a, with, a, uh, uh, with a small stop motion camera and a, <laughs> and a certain amount of Play-Doh yeah. happiness in your snowdrift for the rest of time. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, anyway, you mentioned quarantine, which is how I first came across your work when I watched it on iPlayer earlier in the year. It's a stop motion animation and it's about... Morris dancing badges. Correct. Do you Morris dance? No. And actually, uh, lots of people were kind of tweeting saying that, that quarantine must have been made by a Morris dancing insider. Um, <laughs> because the choreography was authentic. Because, the, yes, uh, the choreography was authentic. And actually, when I was getting interviewed um, for the scheme, so the scheme was run by the BFI and BBC4. And in my interview, when I was pitching this film, one of the main questions was, how are you going to make sure that the Morris dancing is authentic? Um, the severe lack of opposable thumbs might have been a problem. Um, I mean, how can you grip claws, your hanky? Claws are, uh, you know, very adaptable. <laughs> um, I feel like, you know, don't underestimate the badger. <laughs> so, yes, I mainly looked at Cotswold Morris. Sure. Um, I did some filming of some Morris sides. We've moved into uh, some kind of choreography-based podcast now. <laughs> Let's ignore the linked. fact that they're all badges and talk about like, the hanky-twirling techniques <laughs> they've got. A mate of mine made a, a faux documentary once about Morris dancing. Um, anyway, we're still in that way. He, yeah. he was playing an ex-ballet dancer who discovered the, the, the dark side of Morris, oh. which, was, which was bizarre. Yeah, so Quarantine is about a group of English Morris dancing badges and their world being corrupted from species outside or corrupted by the well, institutions? Well, that... um, there's an animal quarantine facility that's been built above their burrow, directly above their burrow, um, and they're kind of trying to avoid the quarantine um, because they associate it with kind of disease, whether that's kind of, you know, physical disease or um, contamination, ideological contamination. They all play musical instruments, don't they? Um, yes. So they... So they 
quarantined animals are all playing uh, on their bars and on their food bowls. Um, but the badgers who live underneath quarantine in their burrow are, they all have kind of um, more recognisable instruments to us. So, yeah, an accordion. I, I brought the accordion along today and a pipe and a drum. Um, so, yeah, and then and then tragedy strikes and um, they're kind of forced to confront their fears and, and seek the help of the quarantined animals. So I would say that you've chosen animals to present a morality tale and therefore you're interested in human morality more than perhaps animals. But then I discover that your previous film is about squirrels. Yeah, I mean, it's all linked. <laughs> <laughs> so so why, why animals? What is it about animals that enable you to tell the stories that you want to tell? I like using animals because you don't have to specify gender or race or really age or sexuality, sexual orientation, any of those things which you would with if you were using human characters. Mm -hmm. Um, So it just allows you to kind of take a step back and present a much more kind of pure allegory. I mean, that's dealing with the kind of human morality side of the story, but there is also obviously a kind of, you know, deep interest in the issues directly affecting the animals. So I started thinking about quarantine... Um, when I when I was starting to think about the film, I was thinking about badgers because of the badger cull and because they represent the kind of animal that should tell this tale because they are a threatened, you know, they're threatened by the cull, but they're not threatened as a species. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not endangered, but they're still kind of being attacked by us. What's interesting, though, is most of the badgers in your tale are the oppressors themselves in the same way that in Squirrel Island the more negative characters are the red squirrels. So you've sort of double inverted things where you've taken those that were too ready to sort of place on a pedestal and sanctify um, and made them seem slightly more dubious in terms of their moral outlook. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, obviously lots of shades of grey and there's never a kind of real villain in my film. So I feel like, you know, everyone's good and bad. But um, I think with the squirrels that came about because the situation that we've created on the islands in England where we've eradicated grey squirrels and we've, you know, um, we're protecting the red squirrels, um, it seems wrong that we are making those decisions and that we are killing, you know, grey squirrels haven't done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. They're just existing and they're just really good at existing. And so, yeah, I think it was kind of interesting to me that to kind of make the red squirrels because obviously the red squirrels just want to protect themselves they're not really evil they just want to protect themselves and they're using means which are yeah kind of morally dubious so squirrel island another animation film it took you seven years to make yeah kind of eight years end to end but yeah okay and it's about uh, the indigenous population of red squirrels ratcheting down their control of this island and inadvertently wiping out other species along the way Yes. So I grew up on the south coast near the Isle of Wight and near Brownsea Island and subsequently love the little red guys and watch this form going, please, please don't hurt them. Like, they mean well. They just, especially with my name being, being uh, Oaks as well and the acorn becomes the grey squirrel's companion on this journey. And I'm like, I don't know which side to support anymore. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's loads of scouting references and there's loads of uh, the red squirrels are abundant obviously and so how much of it was located specifically on brown sea how much of it was about the Isle of Wight like how real was that story you were telling how allegorical is it well I definitely visited both of those places um, while I was doing my research so I visited the Isle of Wight and Brown Sea Island took a lot of photos of the area and I think that the the kind of the feeling that I got when I was looking at... So they have a lot of posters on the Isle of Wight saying, you know, if you see a grey squirrel, uh, call this hotline number. Um, And I think, you know, it's sort of... And also just the tourist industry based around red squirrels. Mm -hmm. um, It all just seems kind of... Quite kind of manufactured and unreal. I love love red squirrels, (laughs) but I equally I love grey squirrels. I think, you know, it's a human intervention to kind of... You know, the idea of kind of good animals and bad Bad animals animals is a total human construct. You were telling me about a friend of yours on the Isle of Wight ferry. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, so during this research period, um, before I'd actually gone to the Isle of Wight, my friend had been um, a few months before and had said that while they were on the ferry over, 
somebody had tweeted as a joke that they'd just spotted a grey squirrel um, running around the ferry. And she said that they stopped the ferry mid-crossing and searched the entire boat, I think, for two hours just to check that there were no (laughs) no kind of, like, maverick rogue grey squirrels. Um, Yeah. When you first described uh, Squirrel Island to me, you said it was influenced by Dr. No and the sort of uh, more absurd 1960s James Bond movies. And then you hear stories like that and you go, well, what's more absurd, the real world we live in or the, the animated one that I've been creating outside? which I find fantastic. Uh, Squirrel Island you can watch online, I think. Yes, on on Vimeo. Vimeo. Yes, for free, yes. So go and hunt that out and you'll sort of understand what we're talking about. It's it's grey squirrels and red squirrels onesies and uh, walking uh, walking acorns. There's a through line. The the music between um, Quarantine and Squirrel Island is made by your partner. Yes, Craig Gell. Which is fantastic. And especially when you end up with Morris dancing and... uh, Janet's playing drums or smashing against their cage bars. It's, it's an incredibly hard world to envisage. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at these badges in front of you on the desk, and, and no one can see them, so we'll put a photo alongside this so they can see these cute little guys. Um, so how did you get into model making? What, what's the backstory? Why models? So I... Uh, this is a really embarrassing story. Great. <laughs> so I used to have really bad... Um, temper tantrums when I was very small and would get really um yeah kind of like hyperventilate throw myself on the ground and go really crazy and um my parents would kind of try all sorts of different things to you know get me out of it and um one I think one day they just gave me some modeling clay and I just became kind of really you know entranced totally focused super calm like really really calm and just made stuff for hours and then I think they just carried on giving me clay <laughs> um uh you know because they'd found the way um and were you making animals then or was yeah it... yeah the first thing I made was a tiger okay it's quite ambitious all the stripes no I mean you've got to start big like <laughs> big big aspirations yeah, I used to make all sorts of animals um, and and also cartoon animals, like lots of Disney characters. Sure. And, and this is in southwest London where you grew up? Yes. And then kind of moved into like, you know, socio-political commentary. At the <laughs> age of five. At, yes, at the age <laughs> of five, making... I know, actually, I think when I was about eight, yeah, so I making kind of like suffragettes out of uh, Fimo, it's like polymer clay. Sure. Um, were these animal suffragettes or no, well um, no I mean they were human I guess you could call them human but okay. yeah so yeah making those kind of things um, and then when I was about 11 um, my parents gave me a Super 8 camera and so then I started making little films using the models mm-hmm. and then you just kept on doing that and then went to college and then again to college and then made a career out of manipulating small objects yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, that's kind of how it's been so far. So you grew up in southwest London, near Wimbledon Common? Yeah, well, yeah, make... kind of near Richmond Park. Okay, and you make political-based stories about small mustelids and rodents and the things. Can you work out where I'm going with this one? Yeah. Are you talking about, I'm talking about the wombles? wombles. You yeah. know what, I was taught by Barry Leith, who um, made the wombles. Uh, he was amazing he um at art school um when I was doing my animation MA he was kind of one of our visiting tutors and he used to come in he'd bring you know Uncle Bulgaria with him he used to wear like a kind of like a dirty old Mac Mm -hmm. and sit in the corner like making rollies um and like telling really filthy stories he was amazing um and yeah so he taught me a lot about stop motion actually um do you think that it was him not only using creatures but also using them to to talk about political issues whether it be recycling or immigration as you do yeah I mean I think there's a really long history of that in animation I think you know it's a the, the form is really suited to telling yeah kind of anthropomorphized animal stories mm-hmm. um and when you spend years and years making something, you kind of want to make something that means something to your, to you and to other people. So I think that's why allegory is used a lot. Sure. Um, 
because you it's know it's a main line to your your soul your conscience i guess yeah and i think you just don't i mean i certainly don't want to spend you know five years making something that's basically just a stupid joke mm-hmm. you know i mean stupid jokes are Good. Good. Yeah. I <laughs> could tell you many stupid jokes right now. Great. But I will resist the temptation. I certainly really appreciate the outlet to, you know, say something that is anything that's kind of troubling me, whether that's about the natural world or, you know, about kind of political issues. I mean, they're all interlinked anyway. Yeah. So because I, I recently watched another short of yours, uh, Polymer. Uh, which was for the Folkestone Festival? Yeah, Salt Festival. It's the Festival of the Sea and the Environment. And that's about plastic bottles in the environment, death of fish, and in typical Astrid Goldsmith manner, it transforms into a science fiction edge, comes alive and takes revenge upon upon Folkestone. Yeah, a giant uh, monster made of dead fish rises out of the harbour and pukes plastic back at the town. Which I think is perfectly fair. Um, it's what we all deserve. Do you think, yeah, well, do you think it's coming? Do you think there's going to be a I really <laughs> hope so. <laughs> I really hope so. Um, I took that story, the kind of genesis of that story is from those kind of, you know, early Enviro monster films like Godzilla, mm-hmm. um, which is all about that. It's all about the kind of... Well, um, nuclear bombs, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like... We are already mutating our animals by putting plastic in the ocean. Um, you know, there's species of um, fish and other sea mammals who are becoming infertile because, you know, because of the amount of plastic they're consuming. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fair to assume that at some point, you know, mutated versions of things are going to happen. And I mean, I, you know, I can only hope that it's a 50 foot dead fish monster <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were talking earlier before we started this podcast about the fabrics that you use for your for your creatures and saying how even with that you're trying to sort of use fabrics that are less destructive to environment to, to, to your lungs in particular and I think you can see that in the in the creatures they are so lovingly made and part of the natural world themselves it seems yeah I just really don't want to be responsible for you know in a thousand years time something you know, they find a lump of plastic that was a squirrel. And... Was a squirrel. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that sort of unfortunately brings me on to what you spent three years doing, I guess. You worked for Duracell, making the Duracell bunny. Yes. And, and I mean, I don't know the inners and outs of Duracell, but I'm sure their rechargeable batteries are now equally as valuable as the non-rechargeable ones, and long may that Sure, let's, let's say that. Yes. <laughs> um, how was that, doing, spending three years working on luminous pink bunny rabbits? Well, I think I inhaled a lot of um, pink fur particles. Um, so, um, yeah, it was probably not, you know, super healthy. Um, it was, I mean, it's, you know, it's a job. Like, mm-hmm. I, I have to, you know, eat and pay rent. Um, so, I, you know, I, I do take on work that is, you know, commercial model making yeah. al- alongside of my films. Um, and, yeah, you don't always have control over you know, how socially conscious or, or worthy those products are. Um, sure. The Duracell Bunny is um, obviously, you know, a, a classic a classic of 70s design. Yeah. Um, you told me that you had a 70-page bunny guideline. Oh, yeah. So before I started working on it, they sent me a 70-page document called the Bunny Guidelines um, with a hotline number at the end. In case you have a, any questions. Yes, it did include, I mean, I'm sure this is probably quite standard for advertising, but it did include, um, I think, four pages on bunny do's and don'ts. <laughs> <laughs> well, what does a bunny do? Let's start with that one. What does okay, bunny, like what the does bunny, bunny is always brave. The bunny is always brave. Yes. So, so hang on, because so always in those ones, there's like the, the Duracell bunny, and there's the, the bunny that isn't powered by Duracell. So is the Duracell bunny brave, and then the other bunny is disregarded so he doesn't get oh this this outline didn't extend to to non-branded bunnies (laughs) (laughs) so uh, if that's a bunny do what's a bunny don't the i guess it would be you know the opposite of that the bunny is never cowardly Cowardly. or the bunny is never malicious um there was i mean there was you know pages so i've i've had bunnies and they can be malicious so i think they're ignoring the natural world in that that edict were they pink no they weren't with a battery welded into their back no well well should you weld batteries though i imagine that wouldn't end terribly well 
probably no probably not i mean i don't know uh, yeah okay let's <laughs> backtrack i don't actually know how the, the battery you know was attached to the back so when you did that when you got that job you had already worked on squirrel island i guess for a bit uh i'd started writing it by that point okay. um but yeah I, I had to kind of and i'd also started making puppets at that point but then yeah you have to kind of stop production to take on other work um so yeah they were all sort of in a box waiting to be animated it's that i mean i, I find this as an actor when i became a professional actor i lost a certain amount of my hobby and because it became my job i think it's fascinating to talk to someone who is doing what they want to creating their world of squirrels and then gets sort of through necessity as we all do gets by tracked into into making rabbits and then you sort of you get your creativity sort of you should get it all ticked. On paper, you're doing what you always wanted to do, but you're not telling your stories anymore. Yeah, it definitely feels different. I think what's really good is that every job I've ever done, even if I don't love it, like love the way it looks or, you know, it's really stressful for other reasons, um, it does mean that you learn something as in from a kind of fabrication point of view that Mm. then feeds into your practice. So I think that even when you're doing things that kind of do slightly erode your soul, you still (laughs) are learning and that's good. Like you, and, and what the best thing is, is if you can use a job to, you know, learn a technique for the first time, you get to try out a technique that you've never used before um, in terms of fabrication um, and you're getting paid to do it so that's you know it's a, it's a win do you ever do that during a film so when you were making quarantine were there new techniques that you wanted to try out oh yeah like what what was what what, what well, did quarantine so, bring you uh, so th- they have to morris dance so <laughs> um which meant that um they have to leap in the air which means that you have to use rigs um and i'd actually never used rigs before because i've done everything in camera mm-hmm. so I before the quarantine I've always shot on 16 millimeter film just doing everything in camera so really kind of analog using a 1960s camera but for quarantine I kind of had the capabilities for the first time to use green screen um, and to use rigs that then were passed on to the VFX department and they could paint them out but yeah it's always it's always a kind of learning curve um, I think that's that's what's kind of most exciting and when I whenever I storyboard I, ne- I never think about oh how am I going to do this I just storyboard and and think about the story and think what would be most fun to see on screen and then sure. just work out how to do it afterwards great so what what is your first endearing memory of the natural world if we ignore plasticine tigers <laughs> like what was it that sent you down this path of Morris dancing badges I mean I mean is there I, one it's gonna single be, thing it's going to be quite hard to find a through line from straight to Morris Dancing Badgers. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in London, mm-hmm. in kind of inner city London. Um, and so I think I've, I have always been interested in the kind of wildlife that you might see around town. Sure. Um, so maybe not the kind of most obscure animals that you would only see kind of on, you know, in the fens or something. Sure. Um, so I think that's kind of why I, you know, wanted to... More familiar creatures like a badger or a squirrel. Or yeah, that. and squirrels, obviously, you see around, you know, around town all the time. I mean, I guess you were asking me the other day about what my first memory of the natural world was. I think the the one that I that really kind of went in deep that I really remember, I really remember the feeling of this, was when I got lost in a snowdrift and just... And kind of almost got swallowed up. I think I was really, really little. I think it was the uh, winter of 1985 when it snowed a lot and we were out for a walk in the country and I just kind of completely disappeared and my parents were like trying to find me um I could hear them calling but I was sort of you know just sunk in mm-hmm. um I think it's I don't know what that's a I don't know why that's really stuck with me I think I don't remember feeling panicked sure but I remember other people being very panicked do you think we might get some kind of alpine set um stop motion in the future <laughs> Just a lot of icing sugar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I remember for some reason at primary school being told that if you ever get stuck in a snowdrift, you have to dribble. What, to melt to work, melt your way out? No, to, to work out which way's, uh, which way's up. 
Because oh. you're supposed to get so disorientated that you never know which way is, is your way back out again. And I think it was the mix between, A, a fact that was useful, and B, something that involved dribbling, and that it sort of <laughs> adhered to my memory. <laughs> but yeah, I think... I, don't, I mean, I don't know what that, what that through line would be to Morris Dancing Badgers. I think there's... I mean, there is quite a lot of, like, pagan imagery in quarantine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, kind of... Even though Morris dancing now is kind of associated with sort of quite cosy village life, um, you know, obviously originated in quite a rural tradition. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I once got kicked out of Salisbury Cathedral close for, for doing pagan rituals. Um, we were doing... What it, were you doing? Uh, it was a site-specific outdoor comedy musical reinterpretation of The Wicker Man. Well, um, that sounds like something I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> there, we were young. We were about 18, I guess, at the time. There's a video of it, and it's, it's not as good as your film, certainly. Uh, it, it was peculiar. Were you burning things? Yeah, we, we did it eventually in Epping Forest, and almost, well, we did set fire to Epping Forest, but we managed to put it out, so that, that was good. Um, I don't know whether I should tell people that. Well, I mean, I've, you put it out? Yeah, we didn't burn it down. It's Yeah, I mean, you know, that's... That's a teenager's relationship with the forest. That is, <laughs> that is it there. You've nailed it. Um, so you, you mentioned the sort of whole pagan ritualistic side of, of, of the Morris dancing, which is there. I mean, it, it's not, not strictly pagan. It actually comes from a Moorish, I think. It's sort of, yeah, it's, but yeah. we've sort of been in the same way that the, the English have over the years. We've sort of taken bits and bobs from different cultures, squidged it all together, whether it be Celtic or pagan or Moorish or whatever, and, and made it our own. It's 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 a, there's that through line throughout all everything you've made, whether it be the Boy Scouts in the squirrel quarantine world, alongside Doctor No, or whether it's the Morris dancing and the indigenous species, and the next film you're planning on making is set a little bit further away. Though. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so <clears throat> just uh, just just uh, you know the next planet along. It's not it's not that far. Um, Elon Musk would disagree with you there. He'd say it's, it's considerably further than he maybe he thought when he first said we were going there in 2012 or whenever it was. Uh, well, I mean, you know, he just didn't do his research. What can I say? Um, it's uh, yeah. So it's it's a short film. I'm writing both a short film and a feature film, both set on Mars. Just been really interested in the um, kind of Mars missions by um, NASA and ESA. Um, The British government is involved in the ESA mission in 2020 to Mars. So we kind of partly built and funded the ExoMars rover. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I've just been kind of interested in... I feel like we're kind of entering into this new era of space exploration. It strikes me as... as quite close to kind of um, colonialism. Sure. Um, it's m- mainly being done by countries that don't have a very good track record of um, looking after the people that they conquer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it's just that I'm just sort of interested in, like, how that how it's all going to play out. I mean, it's, it's going to play out over the next few centuries, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but also what the impact of whatever we discover on Mars, you know, the impact of what, what that's going to have on on our planet as well and the kind of future solutions for global warming and um you know how we will deal with our society and environments um you know that i think they like to couch these missions in these terms of oh it's you know it's just amazing kind of scientific research but you just think they definitely would not be pouring kind of billions and billions of dollars and pounds into something that didn't have some kind of outcome. Sure, financially speaking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, we're sitting here on a podcast talking about the natural world and we're suddenly talking about Mars and I can't help but feel that that's an increasing part of our ecosystem. The amount of satellite debris in space at the moment, the pollution that a single rocket causes is, is immense. The amount of, of raw materials from this planet that we don't get back from doing these these things. For sure, and and also... The, the future solution. So, so many things that, you know, for example, there's no solution at the moment for what we're going to do with um, all the kind of radiation waste that we're, we've been creating mm-hmm. over the last however many years um, with nuclear energy. Um, I read a fantastic article about that once, actually, which was about how, how we actually store it. We're, we're digging these massive holes underground. Yeah, 10 metres down, and yeah. filling them with nuclear waste. Yeah. And this, there was an interview with a guy who was being asked... How to write a sign 
that could potentially be deciphered. 50 million years from now, yeah. yes. I re- yeah, I read... They probably wouldn't speak English. Yes. Like, so it sort of it was more pictorial than anything else. Yeah, how do you warn the people of, you know, tomorrow, yeah. tomorrow, you know, what this is? And actually, that's, that's why... I, th- I mean, that's so interesting. I read that... I don't know if it's the same article, but I read an article that was talking about that. I'll have to hunt it down. We'll put it on the list of inf- interesting things we've spoken about in the podcast. You'll find it on whichever medium you do that, download this from. So. Yeah, and it's about... I think it was about the Anthropocene and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of our era and what we're going to do with all this stuff. And I think that actually... That is, I suspect that part of the reason that they're pouring so much money into the Mars program is because they're looking for somebody, you know, if they can't, if they can't make it habitable, if they can't terraform Mars, if they can't re-green Mars Mm. so that we can go and live there, then it will just become a nuclear waste dumping ground, you know, for our planet. And that's, that's a kind of weird thing to think that we'll colonize another planet for our waste. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and therefore they're not going to be focused on good sustainable solutions on earth you know they're just gonna chuck it into space i love the fact that we've gone from rewilding the isle of wight and <laughs> uh and brownsea island through to immigration with morris dancing badges and ended up in terraforming mars so well that's animation that's animation <laughs> there you go kids sign on now um we've got a list of questions okay one if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world where would it be uh, Yosemite. Oh, cool. I, I think it's Yosemite, or it might be the other one. There's amazing Yellowstone. There's amazing, you know, Edward, Edward Mybridge? Mm-hmm. He took amazing photos, like silver gelatin photos of the um, American parks. And I just, yeah, I've always wanted to go there. I, can, I instantly, I think of that photo with the hatchery, it's like a lake and it's like bright blue, but then you've got the yellow sort of rim of all the sulfurous rock that has come through from all the volcanic activity. Yeah, amazing, great. Question two, which word would you make sure all eight-year-olds learn? Responsibility, or maybe um, koipu, because <laughs> a koipu is one of the main characters of quarantine, and everybody thinks it's a beaver, and that is because nobody knows what a koipu is. That's not a beaver. No. <laughs> it's a koipu. <laughs> Where are koipus from? Originally from South America, but they, they're kind of all over Europe. Uh, they're also in um, North America, but they're... People hunt them. They were in Britain, but we got rid of them in the 30s. Well, we're, we're reintegrating the beaver back into our wildlife, so maybe we can just tell everyone that's a koipu and they won't know any other one. <laughs> what, were you particularly interested in koipus as a kid? Um, no, actually... Just waiting to give it a starring role in yeah, your Yeah, yeah, just, you know, just always believed in it. Um, and I, I, I was actually looking at animals that um, were non-native to Britain, and koipus were brought here by... The British and the, for for fur farms, and then they realised that they were just really destructive to the environment, and they just killed them all off in the thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just kind of interested in that. Um, this is a question that sort of weirdly works really well for you, which is if you could bring back one animal from extinction, what would it be? Because you are in a profession whereby you can bring animals back from extinction. Yeah, or make them up. Yeah. Um, well, actually. I'll tell you, because I found this out the other day. Uh, there used to be these, like, giant armadillos. So I can't remember what they're called. That's really bad. Um, this is a terrible quickfire round. Um, but, <laughs> but there used to be animals that were, yeah, kind of huge, huge, huge kind of table-sized versions of armadillos with, a, with an enormous shell. That sounds awesome. Yeah. They were, uh, and but they, they were too big to curl up. You know how armadillos do that really good thing of curling into a ball? They were too big to curl into a ball. Yeah. But if you're that big, is anyone going to attack you? No, I think you can just sit under your shell, really. Just, you know, wait it out. <laughs> Brilliant. There's a, a giant tree sloth down in Crystal Palace. Not a live one, like oh, it's a model of one. but The like, concrete one, yeah. Yeah, he's great. And I think he'd get on really well with your giant armadillo. The really... Um, anatomically incorrect ones. incorrect yeah. ones <laughs> um should this is a good question for you I, I, everyone else will be listening to this going like why is he just going through these questions He's like you're the only person who probably get all of these um should humans colonize the moon slash mars no although who knows i have a real curiosity about what we're going to find um but i think that uh even a glancing look at history tells us that 
any kind of colonizing that Britain has done is bad news. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no. The Chinese are planning to build a um, research station on the, on the moon, kind of in the next few years. And well, I they've just, just landed on the, on the dark side, haven't yes, they? Yes, and now they're, you know, planning to build... I mean, I, it's 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 a really tricky one because obviously, like my luddite tendencies is like, no, we should not be doing it. We're not meant to be doing any of this stuff. But at the same time, it is just you know natural human curiosity about our you know galaxy and our environment. You just sort of want to know what's there. But yeah, not no. not colonizing it. No, Folkestone's enough. Folkestone is enough. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there's you know the theme park to be planned. <laughs> Fantastic. Astrid, genuinely an amazing pleasure to have you in talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining me. So yes, you've been listening to the incoherent ramblings of me, David Oakes, and my eloquent guest, Astrid Goldsmith. You can follow you on Twitter, I would imagine. Yes, at Mock Duck Studios. Mock Duck Studios. And you can follow us on at Trees Crowd Pod. I hope you want to join us again soon for the next one. Thank you all for listening. That was Astrid Goldsmith. Please check out her website at mockduck.co.uk to find out all information about her and her wonderful creations. As usual, you can find out more about us on treesacrowd.fm and on social media and all the usual places. Uh, If you're still listening now, uh, there's a little extra bit that we weren't necessarily going to include. I try and keep away from politics from time to time. But as quarantine is a politically topical satirical badger based uh story it seemed right to include this this time so if you fancy a bit of badger and brexit keep listening for a further five minutes thanks for listening and we'll see you next time bye bye this is this is the interesting stuff when no one's really recording yeah we've pressed cut don't worry (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't press you on the immigration stuff because since when was freedom of movement a right that could be cancelled? Like it's yeah, well, I mean, yeah, and also you know, borders are a human construct it's again, um, and yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like in a way, there's nothing interesting left to say about it. Like mm-hmm. you know, if you know your position, then you know, then yeah. stop banging on about it. My but, position and do is something that badges and genets and beaver-like marsupials. Not my, the beavers aren't marsupials. Um, <laughs> what, are, what is a beaver? Is it a must, it's probably a rodent, isn't it? Mustard. Uh, is it a mustard? Yeah, I think... Um, well, I know that... Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, because pro- yeah, they're like water rats. Yeah, they probably are rodents. They're probably related to a gerbil, I reckon. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to talk about Brexit, so I, I don't think I should. No, actually. but you know what? At the same time, it is, it is important... I kind of feel like it's important to include that in my work because... Mm. You know, there there were a lot of responses from quarantine where people were kind of absolutely delighted by it and, you know, loved the Morris dancing and Mm -hmm. the folk music and, you know, loved the whole thing. And then, but, you know, got very annoyed that I was calling them right-wing Brexiteers. Um, And, you know, I just think it's, you know, there's... I'm not not really saying that. I'm just saying, you know, like any any kind of... uh, tight holding on to tradition is you know probably should be questioned yeah i think the odd thing for me is doing it with badges which have become such a symbol of britishness or even englishness you yeah further that even when you have been out on a stop the cull march like i have you do get all political viewpoints referenced so to take the, the english badger and say that he would be better off hanging out with some of his more international four-legged friends. I can see why that would annoy some people. I think that's mad because it's it's an allegory that works on a number of levels, brilliantly so. I think the same thing with Squirrel Island. When I was taking it around festivals, I'd quite frequently, you know, be asked by people who were, you know, really annoyed by the film, saying, why is the grey squirrel the hero, you know, um, what about the red squirrels? You know, the grey squirrel shouldn't be the hero. You know, you just think, well, you know, what's your what's your solution? Should we send all the grey squirrels back to their own country? Is that <laughs> what you're saying? You know, and 
I just think, I mean, it is, it is kind of messy and muddy, the metaphors and, well, I and think the what, allegories. The, the, great, the single great thing about your films, the, the last two films in particular, is that they're messy and muddy. In, in a world where we've got Me Too and Time's Up and diversity and equal representation and Act for Change and all of these different groups in my industry that are positive social messages, people are getting scared of saying something that might ally them with one more than the other or, or say something that might be misconstrued being anti-anything. And subsequently, a lot of people are staying quiet or having such a pre-rehearsed message that they don't seem authentic. And I think what is lovely about quarantine in particular is its representation of the natural world and of supporting ecosystems and particular species, whether it be the badger or the carl or whatever, or endangered species from elsewhere, um, or whether it's talking about British immigration in the light of, of Brexit, or just refugees in general, which is something that everyone is talking about now and shouldn't need as much airtime because it's quite simple. Every human being and every animal deserves a right to live. I love the fact that you, as an independent filmmaker, get to talk in big themes without concern and that is what is so refreshing about your film i think um that using dialogue free films gives you that freedom as well because Mm. it means that you can suggest a lot of things without having to be super didactic about it and without having to really you know name your message Maybe um, we should have dialogue-free politicians. Maybe that would be a solution. Just hier- hieroglyphics. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you do sometimes watch Prime Minister's Question Times and imagine if you just sort of sped it up by 25%, took away the, the, the dialogue and put in some fun Buster Keys and esque music, it'd be a whole lot more entertaining. Yeah, all of life would be just, yeah, as a, you know, running at 14 frames per second. It's a silent film, yeah. They do that with TV now. Like, they buy... They buy old American TV shows and rescreen them, but to, to pay for it, they have more adverts, and so they just almost imperceptibly speed up Seinfeld to make it faster. No. Yeah, and you'll never notice, but you'll just, you'll just sort of be jacked up for the rest <laughs> of the day going, jokes need to happen fast, otherwise I'm going to fall apart. Um, yeah, no, life, life in 40 frames a second. <laughs> 